Que pasa, Mufasa, bom dia, buongiorno, shalom, salam aleikum, ni hao. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Happy Friday, everybody. Isn't it a beautiful day today? It is here. I'm sure it is where you are as well. Just got to look at it the right way, man. I am incredibly honored today to host Elia and Louie from North Spore. North Spore has been a huge influence on micropreneurs since the get-go. They've been making educational videos about mushroom cultivation, about innovative practices in the field, and all kinds of other goodies for the last decade or so. And we're going to hear about their origin story right now. This podcast is brought to you by MicroBoost. M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T. Yes, indeed. That right there is some lion's mane cordyceps, soft gel capsules. Pop one for the weekend. Tap in with MicroBoost and try the mushroom coffee. This podcast is also brought to you by Healing Herbals, purveyors of high-quality canna extract, K-A-N-N-A, native South African shrub that's an empathogenic heart opener with a long and rich history of use. Check them out for yourself at healingherbals.shop. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening. A rising tide lifts all boats. You know what they say. All right, then. Without further ado, let's get this show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa. What's up, everybody? We've got Louie and Alaya from North Spore in the house today. What's up, gentlemen? How are you all doing today? Great. It's great to be here with you, Dennis. Uh, it's a busy day here at North Spore. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here as well. It was super cool to meet you at uh, the Mushroom Summit earlier this year. And yeah, busy, but really stoked to talk about all sorts of things with you today. Absolutely. It's an honor to host you. North Spore was one of the first mycology businesses that I really started to pay attention to online. I would see your educational videos pop up, all kinds of great resources that have grown considerably over the last few years. So let's kick off today hearing about the inspiration behind the name North Spore. Awesome. Well, we started North Spore in 2014. Uh, My business partners, John, Matt, and I, um, and we actually were friends from college. Um, We all went to College of the Atlantic uh, in Bar Harbor, Maine, and majored in human ecology. Um, so it probably plays it, who knows what human ecology is, but, uh, it plays well into what we're doing now and what we created from the beginning of North Spore. Um, and, uh, our mission was to make the world of mushrooms accessible to all. And we started as a fresh mushroom farm. So we were really excited about growing fresh mushrooms. And John actually went to grad school for mushroom uh, biology um and was just really excited about doing everything we could uh in-house as part of our growing operation um so we were even isolating our own strains doing our own lab work producing our own cultures and masters and spawn um, and then fruiting it out and selling it um at local farmers markets and to local restaurants um And education was a big part of that um, from the beginning. Um, We teach workshops um, and realized that there was a lot of demand for the spawn that we were producing to grow our own mushrooms. Other people needed spawn and wanted spawn and wanted education around doing that. Um, So we went to different um, organic farmer conferences. um, And that's actually where we met. Louie. Uh, we met Lou at the Boston Flower Show and he was working for another mushroom farm uh, and we hit it off and 
uh, when was that, like maybe a year later, he ended up moving to Maine uh, from Vermont and uh, joined our team. Yep, that was 20, 2017 for me, I think. 20, yeah. So we're going on, I'm going on my seventh year for the company. And when things started out for them, they were growing out of buckets, really low tech oyster methods, a um, uh, lot, of, lot of labor. Uh, and that continued, but we moved on to the bags um, and uh, more, more familiar methods now for indoor cultivation. Um, and that's sort of when I came into the mix. Uh, and they were about, 10 of us or so at that time. Um, and, uh, and things, things have grown a lot. It's been really remarkable to see the whole industry and whole mushroom scene. Um, what it's, what it's done, um, since really, since I got into it is really when I would look, look at that since like 2011 is when I really started paying attention to things. Yeah. Yeah. And I see you've got, Oh, I see you've got the Telluride mushroom shirt on. So shout out Telluride mushroom festival. One of the best to ever do it out there. Please continue. Elia. Oh, yeah, just, yeah, when we were starting, there weren't even, you know, you know, there weren't even that many diversified mushroom farms in the U.S., uh, you know, like, we knew a fair amount of them, and it was a pretty small community, and now it's hard to go to any established farmer's market that doesn't have a mushroom farm, which is just so awesome, it, like, mm -hmm that has grown so much and you know so many aspects of uh kind of the mycological world have like grown in popularity and gained momentum um you know in the last 10 years which is just super exciting to be like a leader in that to be supporting people doing that uh there certainly when we started was no mycopreneur podcast or anyone specializing really in a mushroom podcast at all in any even probably mushroom foraging you know um so we've come a long way as a community yeah it's yeah, remarkable to see the growth right and i remember when i first started trying to grow mushrooms was around 2016 i'd been interested in them for a decade before that but the first mushroom I ever tried to grow was a shiitake on a log that I got. And it was one of those turnkey log kits, much like you probably have available at North Spore. And somehow it only grew one shiitake. I grew one single mushroom. So my joke for years was that I grow mushroom, you know, and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like mushroom? No, 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 I grow, I'm a, I grow mushroom, you know? So I've been a little better since then, but you know, it's really inspiring to see a business like yours grow and prosper because there's so many people who are trying their hat at it and we're passionate about mycology, but there's the distinct reality that there's mycologists or mushroom cultivators. And then, then there's the business acumen. There's the whole business side of it. And that's part of the main premise of mycopreneurs to try to fuse those two and to showcase people who have successfully done that. So you've been able to evolve the business to perhaps around 60 employees, I want to say, uh, yeah, somewhere well, yeah. in that yeah, we're right now, we're, I think, just over 70. We're probably about 72 or 73 right now, which is pretty amazing. When I, you know, met Matt, Aliyah, and John, you've got, like, a lot of diverse skills coming from the three of them, uh, but not necessarily the business background, but they uh, were really able to, you know, turn this into something amazing and, and get the right people around them. Uh, and it's it's just uh, it's just cool to see how we went from f providing mushrooms to restaurants from Boston 
up to Bar Harbor and working maybe seven farmers markets at our max to sort of evolving and being able to pivot and become this sort of broad mushroom supplies, mycology supplies company, which is really what we are now where we don't do any fresh mushrooms for markets or, or restaurants at all. Sure. And one of your core values as a business is to foster collaboration and innovation to improve tomorrow. And that's the second half of your mission statement right there, of course. And I'm curious if you could outline a little bit some of the innovation that you have introduced, because just looking at the website, there's a bunch of different tech for growing, for more optimal yields, so on and so forth. What are some of the innovative practices that you've introduced and, and the innovation that you've introduced to the mushroom space? Well, I'll hit on that. But the first thing that comes to mind is actually one that we haven't even released yet, which I'm really excited about. But we have in-field, super easy to use mushroom cloning kit about to come out. So it allows foragers or anyone in the field to be able to just wherever they are, just quickly pull this thing out of their backpack and have all the tools they need to take a sample and clone that mushroom and then be able to, you know, grow it to use other products to end up doing whatever they want with that uh, genetic material, growing it in a grow room or, you know, culturing it in a lab or whatever it is they want to do from there. But I think there's a lot of different things. I mean, it, it's kind of like because this movement has grown so quickly, it's been so collaborative. When we started, it was pretty new growing with doing like pseudo pasteurization with lime and not using heat pasteurization. And there was a lot of collaboration with other growers in figuring out how to do that really well, which was cool because we were able to not use single-use plastic in that process and then also not use heat pasteurization. And we've definitely just kept refining. You know, our spawn has gone through many, many recipes. Uh, we've kept, like, innovating, trialing, and coming up with a really, really good formulation that we found works really well and has more inoculation points than a lot of other spawns since it's on millet and it's a surface area to volume than other grains. But dialing in the moisture content to use millet, that's been a really long process, but we've gotten to a process and moisture content that we feel is really optimal. So like across the board, as we've scaled, so much at North Spore is totally custom. So much of the technology, that's really important to note bagging machines that have been an innovation and the way we structure our lab and the, the autoclaves that load right into the lab, things like that. And of course, going back to all those recipes for things like the Boomer bag and the Woodlover bag and our Shroom Tech, which yeah. is a pretty new product. In, in general, I would say our biggest innovation which is like you saying the first kind of company you had a lot of exposure to uh, doing content online is just bringing some of these are like a little bit more sciencey or technical processes and making it easy for people to do at home, whether it's small organic farms, being able to grow shiitakes on logs or home growers being able to get our boom room or boomer bin, which are, you know, automated grow chambers. And then with the products they need to be able to successfully grow food and medicine at home really easily and products like, uh, Lou was referring to the shroom tech as an all in one bag. So that literally you just need 
a sporoculture syringe and inject in that and you can grow mushrooms right out of it or boomer bag and our sterile grain substrate for making your own spawn. So we've just like kept adapting and innovating uh, and making these products available to people so they can really be successful and not have to have as much equipment and lab experience as we have to be able to do the same thing. Right on. So some of the former guests on the podcast here who have also been able to scale pretty well, namely people like Jeff Chilton, right? Going back to 1973, a commercial mushroom farmer, Alex Dorr from Mushroom Revival. I've talked to him about this scaling, you know, how so many people do mushrooms as a side hobby, right? They're mycologists. They're really into it. But there comes this point where it's sort of a side hustle, and then you try to make it a full-time thing, and then scaling is this whole other kit and caboodle, right? And that's where I think a lot of the pressure comes from when somebody says, okay, I want to go beyond my farmer's market I'm doing or beyond my supplying the local restaurants in my area, and I want to try to scale. And uh, I'd be curious if you could share a little bit about some of the challenges that you came up against when you started to scale and some of the ways that maybe you overcame those in due time? Well, one thing that I think was, I would say a blessing and a curse. And I think honestly, a lot of times what I've learned from business is that people talk about strengths and weaknesses. And a lot of times, whatever your strength is, is also your weakness and whatever your weakness is, is also your strength. And so we had three founders and, you know, we're all close friends. And I think we, we we're all close friends, but what we didn't realize is how well our skill sets kind of fit together. And we kind of like each of our strengths kind of filled another one's void. So that was really important. But the other thing that was different than what other people do is kind of having a lot of people have a side hustle and then, you know, grow it out and then eventually hope to like scale and keep scaling so we kind of had to go hard and fast from the beginning because we decided there was three of us as founders and we quit our other jobs and just went all in so we and it wasn't even just one person we had to support we had to support three people with this business with just like hitting the ground running and so it wasn't kind of like where other people have a, a career and then they're like, they, they're always afraid to leave their job until their side hustles kind of like could sustain them. We we're just like, we're just going for it. Like we need to make this work. And so uh, that's what we did. And we just put all our energy and focus into it. Matt actually for work to summer job, but John and I from day one, we're just all in all our time and it's hard to believe, but we were literally within six weeks of making that decision and uh, renting this tiny little space in Westbrook, Maine, which was the smallest thing we could find on Craigslist at that time, which was considered commercial real estate. It was not. It was like a tiny garage that didn't even have a garage door. Uh, and we were washing buckets in a 55 gallon drum with a garden hose with cold water in the driveway because we didn't even have a commercial sink or anything yet. But within six weeks of signing the lease on that space, we had set it up in order to grow mushrooms, made a tiny little lab out of a four by four mushroom grow tent and had harvested our first mushrooms and were selling them to restaurants. So we were generating revenue within six weeks of starting, which is one of the amazing things about mushroom life cycles. Like, it, you know, that, that would be hard to do uh, as even like a vegetable farm or something. So that was like uh, kind of just innate to the biology of growing mushrooms. Like we'd 
you know, we weren't even inoculating for a little bit because we it, there's carpet in that building. We were tearing out carpet, building the grow room. And then within six weeks, we were uh, selling our mushrooms. And it kind of just, even as the fresh mushroom business grew, it was just, you know, we ended up expanding into a building next door, building more grow rooms, uh, improving our production process and getting like key members to join the team becomes, I think, really important with scaling. Like that was really important in the very beginning and it's still incredibly important. Like, you know, I think there's the team you're working with is the most probably important part of any business. I think it's important to mention a couple other things come to mind for me for sure. Cause I came in a little bit after that and there were already, you know, already some scaling had been done and looking at what is available in your state and community to help small businesses is so key. And that was really big for North Spore, Launchpad, Maine, and Greenlight, Maine. Do you want to touch on, on that oh, for a minute? Yeah, those were later on in 2018. So it was four years after we started. I did two business pitch competitions and ended up winning both of them, which was amazing because they were three days apart. And one was a three-minute pitch and one was a seven-minute pitch. So I had to memorize two pitches of different lengths. And Launchpad, I won first. That was fifty thousand dollars, and then Greenlight Main was three days later, and that was a hundred thousand dollars. So for and for our business, I mean, that was at that point we we're maybe ten employees. So having a hundred and fifty thousand dollars of grant money, uh, like really accelerated our business and helped a huge amount. Um, but that was a pretty crazy process needing to like remember those pitches be ready to go from one competition to the next and that you know maine has supported us really well and um there is a really, uh, supportive business community here as well as you know you need to obviously there needs to be a customer base uh, that's you know not the team's important but the team if you need the customers you need people to want the service or product you're providing. And, you know, definitely our community was hungry uh, for the mushrooms we were growing. And I will say we actually, there was a mushroom farm that started before us in Portland that had started and closed. And, you know, I think like in a way we were lucky because we were kind of filling a void and then there was another mushroom farm, which is now a major player um, in supporting commercial growers, Maine Cap and Stem. They started right at the same time with us. And we're, we're really supportive of each other. We we're both doing fresh mushrooms. We ended up being at the same farmer's markets. Like we we're kind of competitors, but we we're just really supportive of each other and we're still good friends with them. And they're still supplying mushroom farms with blocks um, and are still in Maine. So that, that was cool to like start at the same time with them and still be like colleagues with them. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, Maine has a really good stronghold of like mushroom cultivation and uh, collaboration. Indeed. I'm just trying to think if that is the same main cap and stem. Is that Eric from Myco Wizards, the same one? Yes. Yeah. I thought so. So I've done the Michael Wizards podcast and I'm a big fan of Eric, wonderful yeah. individual. Yeah. And 
Yeah, there's so many mushroom brands now, as you're aware of, it's almost hard to keep track of them, which is kind of an amazing thing to say. Even when I started the podcast in 2020, it was still a pretty small field. And, you know, just in the few years since then, it's become a viable idea, more than an idea. It's become a viable strategy for a lot of people to launch their businesses. As you say, basically every farmer's market has a mushroom stand now. And then even more so, a lot of a lot of stores are starting to carry more varieties of mushrooms as well, right? Like once upon a time, you had to go to a farmer's market to get lion's mane or more exotic mushrooms. And now they're popping up all over the place and you start to see them on the menu at different restaurants, thanks to smaller mycopreneurs who go there in person, right? And uh, I remember I had a high schooler on mycopreneur named Hunter Vargo, I think was the last name. And he literally launched his business in high school and would just go to different resorts and restaurants in the area with some printed out recipes and some samples of his mushrooms. And then before he graduated high school, he had like 12 clients in the region, right, who were buying mushrooms. And it's kind of amazing to think that that is a a viable route for people. So I'd be curious to hear more about how an influx of capital like you very fortuitously experienced practically changes the business. Because this is the second day in a row that I've had someone auspiciously who said that they had a pretty major influx of capital. In their case, it was $35,000 where they went from bootstrapping and essentially doing everything at home to all of a sudden having tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. What are the practical considerations? How did that actually change the business? And and what was that decision-making process like for where you put that capital to use? From the beginning, we've been a bootstrap business and we still are. You know, we do not have investors and we've grown this business from selling uh, mushrooms and mushroom supplies. Um, But we've been super fortunate and have um, got grants, loans, um, business competition awards. Um, So I feel super fortunate in that. And they, you know, at each stage that you're at, a small amount of money can make a big impact. It's like, I think having a good plan for what you're going to do with that money and and using money really wisely is really important. I always say it's as easy to waste a dollar as it is to waste $10 million. Like there is no difference really. Like there's some zeros, but like you can easily waste a lot more money just as well as wasting a little bit of money. So having a good plan is important, but the first money we ever got into the business way before we were bankable, we got a $10,000 loan from an organization called No Small Potatoes, which just basically loaned money to small farms that were probably unbankable. And I mean, that $10,000 may have been the most impactful uh, money we got into the business because that was just at the very beginning. And that probably allowed us to get even just like basic equipment, you know, maybe like a flow hood, and just some things that we really needed. And then when we won that $150,000, that really allowed us to upgrade our lab. Um, I think we bought an autoclave at that point. Like before that, we were using um, All Americans, uh, the small kind of like self-contained autoclaves. And we bought a real autoclave at that point um, and a bunch of other lab equipment. I think we might've got another flow hood at that point as well. So, I mean, I feel really fortunate that the kind of business that we're in, we've been able to grow over time, but it is pretty equipment heavy and facility heavy. And I mean, it's our, 
the facility that we're in now, it's amazing just seeing that like, it's just humming right now. We have all kinds of production, all kinds of lab work of a large eight room lab um, that does everything from super, super detailed culture work uh, to like quite high capacity production of substrates and spawn and grow kits. Um, and there's actually different production lines within that lab. And so capital is important, but I think really like learning, it, it's important to understand what you're doing and to not waste the money. We spent a lot of time designing this new facility and we just, we've now been in it full time everyone in the company for about 14 months <laughs> and it took two years to uh design and build out um, which was a long time but if i had not gone through all those earlier steps i wouldn't have been able to design and build out this facility to what it is and you know we put many many millions of dollars into this facility and if I didn't have those earlier experiences, that money would have been wasted because I would have built a facility that didn't work that well, you know? Right. So, you know, just looking at it early on too, I think um, we had, uh, especially Matt's really, you know, brilliant um, aesthetic. We really good design and, and marketing um, and just uh, North Sport tr tried and succeeded at doing a lot of things. Um, but that's scary and risky. And so it's important, I think, for companies to, you know, figure out what it is they do, what it is that they're focusing on and what their market is. I think that was a really cool thing that we did when we were scaling fresh mushrooms is really figure out um, what the market was for those fresh mushrooms and make that happen and getting good at figuring out what the market is. Um, doing that work initially um, is key. And I actually have talked to a lot of farmers that sort of don't um, and a lot of businesses that don't. And that's very, very, very important. And every, I mean, every business of any kind, but certainly every, like every mushroom farm I've ever been to is different, like different things. They have different markets. They have different climates. Like we're good friends. Um, with the folks at Far West Fungi, and they don't even need cooling or heating because they're they're in you know uh, coastal kind of mid California in the Santa Cruz area, and it's just so temperate there that it's perfect temperature for growing mushrooms year round, which is amazing. I mean, here in Maine, it's a bit hotter in the summer and it's very cold in the winter, so you need to be able to heat and cool. Um, if you're going to grow mushrooms year round. Um, so every business and farm needs to figure out what works for them. And I think that it's a lot of, you can take uh, inspiration from other people, but you kind of have to see if it works for you. And then when you figure out what works, like keep doing that and expand on that. Yeah. So are you, are you familiar with, uh, with far West? You must know those guys. Uh, yeah, I've connected with them. I haven't had them on the podcast, but absolutely. Yeah, yeah Kyle and Erin, they're, they're great. And I know that I think in 2024, uh, in the spring, I think they're putting on a hosting a mushroom festival in the Santa Cruz Mountains there, which should be really, really cool. Um, and I know they're going to focus on um, having really knowledgeable um, top tier people 
um, come to uh, have fun and, and teach and learn uh, all of that. So I'm, I'm excited about that one. I love the in-person gatherings. I think that they return so much value in terms of like being able to build these kind of face-to-face connections and see who's doing what and, and build rapport. A couple of anecdotes come to mind from what you just discussed. One of them being about a friend of mine who needed to expand his lab at a certain point because his grow shelves, his racks literally collapsed because he was growing too many mushrooms. And it was at that point, he goes, I think we need a new facility. And I said, that's actually a nice problem to have, you know, when so many people want your mushrooms that your racks collapse and you have to, to build out. And then another one is about that, that statement you made that it's just as easy to waste a dollar as it is to waste 10 million is such a good, shrewd business approach to things. And this podcast, Micropreneur Podcast, is modeled after a podcast I started listening to in 2012 called Tropical MBA. And essentially, it was location-independent entrepreneurship. And those fellows uh, had a seven-figure exit from their first business, but one of the co-founders was famously shrewd to the point where even though he could have been driving a luxury car and you know expanding real estate, there was a story that he walked across Barcelona to get to some kind of open mic night, and then there was a 10-euro cover charge, and he said, I'm not doing it, and then he turned around and walked home. And I, I love that because you know it's very easy for people to get caught up and, oh, we've got money. We can splash it out here, splash it out there. And having been to a lot of conferences over the last year, I've seen people splashing out money, right, on these after parties and dinner parties. And right now it's a big convention in Las Vegas, and it's sort of an open secret or a joke about these brands that come in and spend twenty dollars to $100,000, and they throw a great party, and then they go, where's the return on that? After, you know, what? <laughs> well, so uh, it is good to be very shrewd and to bootstrap, and I've, you know, tried to focus yeah. on that with, with Micopreneur as well. Yeah, I have two things. I mean... One is, you know, like parties and things like obviously that's kind of an extravagance, but that even is applicable in design. You know, I have seen a lot of people that have had more money than we had in the beginning, like whether they have investors or they personally had more money or whatever it is, build out pretty expensive and pretty fancy labs and grow rooms and facilities from the beginning, but not had a lot of experience. And I've seen those businesses fail. I've seen them tear out a million dollar lab that they just built because like they didn't know what they were doing and i mean the contractors don't care like you can buy all that equipment and build something but it doesn't mean it's going to function well you know so it is important to make sure you have a plan and experience and you know there's probably um, some indication to what you're trying to do is going to work Um, and then along those lines of learning and about growing so many mushrooms, the shelves couldn't hold it. Uh, When we first started, we were growing in five gallon buckets with holes in them, and we would stack them on top of each other. So we'd have these kind of towers. It looked amazing. We'd just have these grow rooms with long lines of bucket towers that were probably about seven to eight feet tall. We'd do like five or six buckets on top of each other, and they all have holes, and they just look like these columns with mushrooms growing out of them everywhere and in a way also they're kind of like dominoes and twice i was in one of those rooms and bumped them 
a little too hard by accident and literally just had a massive room of buckets that all weigh about 50 pounds each filled with substrate collapse on me. And one time it was so hard, it literally broke the walls of the grow room. So basically just having this massive pile of substrate and buckets and mushrooms, you know, hundreds and hundreds of buckets stacked on top of each other all fall like dominoes and just collapse around you is kind of exciting, but uh, you know, another part of the learning process. <laughs> and safety has improved a whole lot. <laughs> Barring, no, that's important, super important. So, you know, one other bit that relates to scaling and hiring the right people, the key hires, I've got two people who come to mind that both run pretty sizable independent mushroom operations that have both confided in me that they're, they're kind of control freaks and that they've tried to hire people and they've tried to hire friends and then it doesn't get done the way they want it or whatnot. And maybe that's an impediment for a lot of people because yeah, like hiring is one thing, but like hiring the right person is another thing in, in that case where I'll ask like, how come, you know, you've got two hangers here and you're doing everything yourself. It's like, well, you know, I know how it works here and I have my process dialed in. What was that like when you started bringing on more people outside of the original three? Were, were there any growing pains there or did you have your SOPs dialed in enough where people could just come on board and start growing turnkey? I would say we did not have our SOPs dialed in. I mean, now luckily we're at the point where like our managers and lab team create really amazing SOPs and adapt them and improve them. And I feel so thankful for that. Um, but it was just kind of flying by the seat of our pants in the early days. However, to your point about, I've, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get in a trap of like, if there were just 10 of me, like I'd be able to do everything. Like nobody can do this as well as I can. And there's like kind of a lot of ego and like feeling like nobody works as hard as the entrepreneur has as good ideas. And I understand that from the standpoint of being an employer, but that has not been our approach at all. And I don't think it's the way to build a strong team. Like when I have someone else join the team, I want them to bring something that I don't bring to this team. I don't want them to be replicating what I'm doing. Like that doesn't expand our team and our ability to innovate and improve. Um, so I think like Matt, John and I kind of from our basis and friendship and like we communicate really well together. We really respect each other. We have a good time together and we're lucky that we have really different skill sets. And I think from that kind of like origin team, which is just expanded, you know, Lou coming on pretty early on, we've tried to bring in people that like complement us and are not just kind of like doing what we did and then not like right not micromanaging is the word like is the word here i think that the expansion has been possible and the uh so much of the good work has been possible because matt Eliot, and john put trust in people to do their jobs to do things well you could even say micromanaging in this context right so <laughs> So let, let's talk a little bit about the macro narratives or the macro perspective around mushrooms right now in the sense that, for example, cordyceps, having heard people who were growing cordyceps in 2016, 17, et cetera, say that it used to be $1,300 for a pound. Don't quote me on the exact prices there. And now it's you know down to 300 or 400. And I've heard Jeff Chilton speak about how in China, the volume that they do makes it almost impossible for 
North American produced mushrooms, according to him, to compete on a supplement level. If you're doing fresh mushrooms for the farmer's market, go for it. But he's been pretty adamant about just talking about how difficult it will be to compete. And I've talked to people in Europe as well, you know, running operations in Finland and whatnot about how cheap and how quality you can get mushrooms from overseas. Uh, is that something that you've observed, A? Do you have a response to that, B? And in general, I think that there's sort of a, uh, almost a xenophobia in some ways around like mushrooms coming from China. And it seems to kind of split people interested in mushrooms and specifically micropreneurs or people with businesses kind of on either side of this camp where some people are very in favor of sourcing this, you know, cheap but quality mushrooms from China and other people saying, no, don't touch those. They're full of heavy, heavy metals, et cetera. So it's kind of a broad topic. But in general, do you think that American grown or North American grown mushrooms for supplements are viable in the long run as more people enter the market? I'm happy to speak to that, but do you want to speak to it? Uh, yeah, lots of thoughts on that. Um, I think that there is definitely um, a need and a hunger for exactly that. Um, I think that was a topic that was talked about at numerous moments during the uh, at the Mushroom Summit as well, that there's this, uh, this desire and need, and I think a market. And I think part of the market is actually back in Asia. I think they want to see that made in America label. Um, and they do equate that with quality. I think there is a lot of potential to market that back um, to Asia uh, in particular. Um, uh, so, you know, we work uh, closely with Namex um, and are good friends with uh, the Chiltons. And um, uh, we know that it's an extremely high quality product. And that's the most important thing at the end of the day. Um, that you're getting a really high quality product. But focusing on scaling that in the US, I think I think it really can be done because the market, the, the desire everywhere is just growing as people, as more research is done into the benefits of these things um, and uh, as, as people incorporate them into so many different products, right? You can find whether, whether it's the coffee alternatives or the gummies or anything these days. One thing I could... Uh talk on this subject all day and I have lots of thoughts, but one thing from kind of the beginning of being a commercial mushroom grower that um, really struck me and still does is I don't think scale with mushroom growing diminishes quality. And I am a food snob, like egg production on the other hand, like I don't think, I think if you have like over 500 chickens, you can't produce the quality of eggs that a smaller grower can produce. And I, I've never seen it. Like large scale egg production is always worse quality. I've just never seen high quality, large egg production. And I think a lot of things are like that. Like when it scales, quality goes down. However, I do not believe that's true with mushrooms because to grow mushrooms well, consistency is really important. Equipment helps a lot where a lot of times smaller growers might not have that equipment. They might not have those SOPs. They might not have the labs. Um, and it's kind of mushroom, indoor mushroom growing at least. It is so kind of like environmental controls are important. Um, and I think that it can be done the way in which like you know, wood substrates are processed or manure-based substrates can be processed at scale, like grow rooms can be done. And so I do think mushrooms can be produced very 
um, in a really high quality way at scale in a way that a lot of other, like I, I definitely prefer to consume uh, local like meat and, you know, local vegetables. And I, I don't think when they're at a really large scale, they can be produced as well. That said, I love like locally produced outdoor grown mushrooms as well. They're really, really high quality. Um, but I think that mushrooms can be produced at scale in a high quality way. Um, but I think that there'll always be a market um, for like, kind of more artisanal, smaller scale. And is this the reason that uh, the price is going down is the demand for cordyceps is going up, obviously, like people are really excited about it and want to buy it. And what happens is there becomes more consumer awareness, there becomes a bigger market. And even though in general, the price may be going down, that also creates a market for a higher end product. Um, and there will be people that like, want to know the grower of the cordyceps that they're buying from that want a supplement that's produced at a smaller scale. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to add, I'm going there, Dennis, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say it fruiting bodies. So the other thing that's happening in the market is a lot of the products out there are made with grain spawn guys. Um, and, uh, the higher quality, you know, product that um, I think uh, uh, a lot of education needs to go into and a lot of the um, uh, local production can be is fruiting body, um, which is a lot higher quality. Um, and um, as, as consumers are educated on that more, um, you know, they're going to be willing to um, seek that out and pay for it as well. Um, but I think that's... Um, a continuous battle and we're on the fruiting body side of that, of that whole battle. I know you've, you know, a lot about it and I know you've, you've talked about it. Um, it's, it's certainly a, a continuous thing. Um, and so to meet demand that's already there, um, folks are using, are, are basically extracting grain, right? And that all can be replaced and should be with fruiting body. And, I totally agree with that. Another thing that this makes me think of is actually in the early days when we were thinking about growing our business and scaling, one of the reasons we did not become a national supplier of fresh mushrooms is because we didn't believe that that scaled in the quality um, that we wanted to provide. And that's not because that's like a contradiction to what I just said. It's not because that you can't produce high quality mushrooms at scale. It's that we didn't want to grow mushrooms in Maine at scale and be shipping them to Colorado because, you know, you, mushrooms are perishable and they don't travel that well. And it's so much, you know, what does like travel better and works better for all those farms getting spawned from us and growing right there in Colorado or wherever it is they're growing and being able to sell fresh mushrooms at their farmer's market directly to consumers. Sometimes those mushrooms were picked that morning, you know, and so those are going to be the highest quality, uh, freshest mushrooms anyone can get. And we are able to support those growers and those consumers getting really high quality products and being able to get high quality mushrooms where, again, I don't like, I think China can produce really high quality mushrooms at scale. However, are you going to get high quality mushrooms grown in China in the U S 
no, like you have to ship them from China. Like, you know, like, uh, you know, a fresh mushroom coming from China is not going to show up in the grocery store here. Uh, I mean, that's also why people ship blocks and uh, substrate from China, then fruit it out here. I mean, that I just think is like there's a lot of energy consumption in that. And I don't think it makes sense environmentally. I think it's much better for uh, substrate to be processed here, mushrooms to be uh, grown here than shipping substrate from China to the U.S. just to be fruited out here and sold. But it's a, it is complex, like you said. There are so many species that still are, that are amazing that have still not broken through kind of in the U.S., um, and I think that even though they may be produced by big mushroom, there is a hunger for smaller producers to start making sort of a fresher, perhaps different strains uh, version of like enoki mushrooms, right? Enoki, when they're grown, uh, you know, it's not something it's not something that we currently carry, but there's just like a bunch. We, ca we carry things like piapino. People don't know what piapino are really chestnut, namaco, these mushrooms that like, they're very popular maybe in Asia, but they haven't really broken through, I think, as much as, as they could and still have a ton of potential for, yeah, uh, restaurants, markets of all kinds. Totally. A few that come to mind are, I heard, Antrodia mushroom as being this kind of emerging mushroom that hasn't broken through in the U.S., Antrodia from Taiwan. Tiger's milk is another one that's kind of very popular right now. It's just emerging in the health and wellness and biohacking community, which admittedly, I don't think I've ever had a supplement made with tiger's milk. I was over in Asia for three months this year in Singapore, Japan, Korea, a few places, and you see mushrooms everywhere. And it's kind of awesome, right? Like I got a bag of cordyceps that I think were maybe three ounces of cordyceps for four or five US dollars, right? For militaris, it's pretty amazing considering two years ago, I paid 75 for a half ounce of cordyceps here in the, you know, in, in Colorado. So it's pretty, mm -hmm. pretty remarkable to see overall. And also just the, the mushroom culture, right? Like you go into any health food store and you see tons of ophiocordyceps or sinensis, you see the actual sinensis there and you see militaris and you see lion's mane and still not that common in the US, increasingly common, but you don't go into every grocery store and see a rack full of a dozen different types of cordyceps grown on different substrates, right? So I think we're headed that way. I don't know how soon they've got a head start on us for sure. The other cool thing, I think what's so cool about mushrooms, um, any kind of farmed plant has gone through a lot of selection to become like the, the, the stable crop um, in, in large production. But with mushrooms, it doesn't have to be that. You can find a good strain in the wild and that can go right into production um, as it is um, a lot of the time, which I think is amazing. Especially if you use the forthcoming North Spore cloning kit, you know, and you take it out yeah. there in the field, all good stuff. So I have one more question related to kind of mushrooms, and then we can move in another direction about uh, the evolving policy landscape in the United States, perhaps. But there's a lot of excitement around the broader potential of mushrooms. And it's part of what drove me to start Mycopreneur after reading a Trad Cotter book called Organic Mushroom Farming and Mycoremediation. It was the first time I'd ever heard of mycoremediation. And in the same book, there's a blurb where he's talking about mushroom packaging. And I had never heard of Ecovative at that point. And I started thinking, wow, I had no idea you could do all these other things and that people are doing it and have proof of concept. Now, from what I understand, talking to people who have 
gone through the process of trying to bring these products to market, there's a huge gap between proof of concept and theoretically this is possible. And we can start cleaning up oil spills at scale and we can start building mycotexture communities at scale. And one of the the some of the feedback that I've heard is that, for example, people trying to replace styrofoam with a mycelium composite, it's just not commercially viable. And, you know, maybe in some pie in the sky future, it'll happen. But the reality is that things need to be commercially viable if they're going to be adopted at scale. Do you think that we are going to start see some of these, we're going to start seeing some of these more ambitious micro-remediation companies and, and mushroom materials companies really start to penetrate the mainstream in the next few years? Or is it too difficult and steep of a barrier to entry? I think we will. I mean, I think the first thing you need is proof of concept. You know, you have to create something that works. And even, you know, unfortunately in the capitalist environment we're in, not everything that works means it's commercially viable. And so that doesn't, people can have a concept um, that works and it may not become a viable business. Um, but the first thing you need is something that works. And then I think if you have that, then the next like step in problem solving is how do you make that commercially viable? And, um, you know, there are challenges around that, but reducing the cost or um, educating consumers so they're willing to pay that extra price for that product. You know, um, we actually, uh, the past year, we've spent a fair amount of time um, with Sue Van Hook. It's kind of paused right now, but um, she was the head mycologist at Ecovative, um, and we were working with her to create a myco buoy, so a mycelium-based buoy to replace plastic and styrofoam in the oceans. And I think that that is going to like hit a proof of concept and viability much, much before it will hit you know, a commercialization and, um, you know, plastic and styrofoam buoys are still going to be for probably quite a while, a lot cheaper to produce, um, than a mycelium based buoy, but, does, but that doesn't mean that at some point, um, those mycelium based buoys are not going to become the dominant, uh, you know, buoy in the ocean. And I think with a lot of these other products, we're going to start seeing, you know, there's more and more proof of concept of people um, trying it, um, making it work. It may not have um, commercialization initially, but, um, you know, like they say, like a, a successful, uh, a, whatever, successful, an overnight success isn't built in a day because there's a lot of time leading up to that before it becomes an overnight success. Um, so I think we are going to see a lot of really amazing things happening with mushroom products in the next couple of years. But I think it's just a little by little. The other component, really, I, I think um, that, uh, you know, beyond it, it just evolving and these these innovations step by step, getting into um, go toe to toe with the products that are out there is obviously the public, the, the policy side. It's incentivizing, it's governments incentivizing these things, de-incentivizing other things that are maybe more damaging, maybe outright banning certain practices. Um, and I think, I think uh, that that might be a component, you know, mandates where like we need to transition here and need to utilize these other things and, and 
um, it really puts momentum behind scaling, um, which uh, makes things more uh, uh, price competitive. Great point. I just had dinner in Amsterdam last month with my friend Eric Puro, who runs Kappa Mushrooms over there. And he was telling me that the EU has adopted new regulatory guidelines where by 2030, all manufacturing has to be carbon neutral, somewhere in that vein. And that that heavily favors mushroom entrepreneurs and micropreneurs and people who are building these, where even if it's more costly, if that meets the admission qualifications, right, or the carbon emission qualifications, it still gives you the competitive advantage. So that's thinking a few years ahead. And of course, the United Nations has 17 sustainable development goals, the SDGs. And I've done some content for a couple of universities uh, focusing on the SDGs. And the more I look at them, the more I realize how mushroom entrepreneurs are kind of meeting a lot of these goals just by virtue of the sort of regenerative design in play. And so I, I do think that there could be a quantum leap, as some people might call it, in the next few years. And just looking just a little bit to the south of you guys there in South Carolina, MycoWorks opening their you know, massive facility, commercial facility with 400 employees and producing reishi leather at scale now. This is something that you know five years ago or 10 years ago is, was pretty inconceivable. And lo and behold, it's, it's happening right now. So these things maybe will even accelerate more quickly in the next few years as change in technology does tend to compound and accelerate, so on and so forth. Let's keep talking about policy, but let's shift it away from North Spore products and talk more about the cultural climate right now. And what I believe is largely driving a lot of the public interest in mushrooms is psilocybin mushrooms, psychedelics, right? Like they have absolutely caught on in mainstream culture. We've had five years or four years now of pretty constant primetime coverage of clinical trial data coming out of huge outlets like BBC and Fox News, et cetera, devoting primetime coverage to psilocybin mushrooms and to their potential. What is the climate like in the Northeast and where you live? Is this something that you've overtly noticed? And do you think that the cultural interest in psilocybin mushrooms is driving this broader awareness of functional mushrooms and mycoremediation and so on and so forth. I, I'll let Lou talk to this well, as sure. well, but I, I think the two really, in a lot of ways, go hand in hand. Um, because like, if you have experiences uh, with psychedelic mushrooms, you're probably more prone to think about sustainability and your connection with mycelium and the fungal world and might get more curious, um, you know, about other medicinal mushrooms, eating mushrooms, growing with mushrooms and, you know, vice versa. I think if you kind of build awareness, even if it's whatever growing or eating shiitakes, but you haven't had, uh, psychedelic experiences or been microdosing like that also, you know, I think it kind of like funnels both ways in a way. And I think that they kind of like build off each other um, and really support each other and just kind of building like we're talking about a whole kingdom that has just been really like kind of underrepresented in American society and culture and it's, you know, people sometimes talk about, is this a trend? It's like, no, I don't think it's a trend because this is an entire biological kingdom 
that has not been understood or represented. And it's just in the infancy of people like understanding it and being excited about it. And that's just going to keep building. Um, so I think that's really exciting. And I really do think, um, oh, we speak to it as well. But I think that um, the whole kind of like world around mushrooms fits together, um, psychedelics and non-psychedelics. Yeah, we're really, you know, supportive of change in, in that regard. And um, I used to work at the farmer's market here in Portland um, and people would come up and it was a daily thing, right? Every Saturday you get people coming up and saying, do you have those magic? Are your mushrooms magic? And you kind of got to just like laugh and nod and be polite, even though it like kills you a little bit inside the, the after hearing it for the millionth time. Um, but they they it's it, and they'll, they'll have heard of that but they wouldn't have heard of lion's mane you know um and uh they certainly don't know anything about the species about about cubensis or about anything that's going on and and it it's cer certainly people are learning more and more and um maine in particular is what what we can speak on um maine is a pretty independent-minded state it's a pretty interesting pretty interesting stuff going on up here in our corner. Not a, not a huge population, but um, I think uh, th there's a bill right now that uh, has been uh, sort of working its way through things. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but they've had hearings um, and it's, it's really aimed at the VA. You know, I think that's really where, um, and a lot of states are looking at that, how to make it bipartisan um, by uh, are really, you know, medicalizing this stuff. Uh, and um, we sponsor something called Maine Fungi Fest, uh, which this year is going to be at the beautiful new USM campus here in Portland. And it's going to be a lot of fun. And it, it's um, a lot of the focus of that. It's all things mushroom, right? It's going to be great. You can come join us there. Um, uh, it's, in, uh, it's in May. Uh, geez, what are the dates off the top of my head? I'm sorry, Maine Fungi Fest. Uh, but it's uh, it's the um, it's going to be really fun, um, and of course, drumming up support um, for for changing things um, in the psychedelic realm is uh, is part of that. Um, but the biggest news is just recently, um, Portland, Maine, just the city, um, decriminalized uh, uh, psychedelic mushrooms, and the way that they do that. Um, in, and they've done, done this in a bunch of other cities is they, they don't like decriminalize, but they put it as a lowest priority, you know, like they can't actually like say this is now like not a thing, but they take it and they put it as the lowest enforcement priority, um, which is a great step. Um, and so things are happening out here. And there's, there's, you know, so much science showing that, uh, psychedelics can be really effective and um you know ptsd helping with addiction um helping with depression um you know there's there's a lot of things that can be and people just have these really profound experiences that are really meaningful um to them and i think it like kind of can really help people gain like personal insight and even like insight into uh how they interact and act in the world. And uh, this isn't really directly about policy, but you're in Chiapas uh, 
Mexico right now. Um, so John, uh, one of the co-founders of Northspore and I, um, our second year in college, uh, we did a study abroad in Merida and the Yucatan in Mexico, um, which was really when we probably became really close friends. And afterwards, we decided we would travel to Oaxaca. And we went to Huautla, um, where uh, Maria Sabina lived. And we actually uh, took mushrooms with her grandson, uh, who was a shaman there up in the mountains of Huautla. And that was the first time John had ever uh, taken mushrooms. And, you know, I don't think if, I'm not sure if we didn't do that, like if we would have started Northspore together, you know, like I think that did a lot um, for our relationship. I think like it was a very like profound experience to have together and it was, you know, based around mushrooms and this really incredible experience with this shaman. It was just the two of us and the shaman um, and all of it was in Spanish, which was also, we just studied a lot of Spanish. So like that was a really cool experience to, um, have with him in this really quiet, beautiful place up in the mountains. Uh, and I think that also just like really accelerated, especially John, but both of our interest in mushrooms. And I'm not sure that John would have went to grad school for mushroom biology uh, without having that experience. Like, unfortunately, he's not on the podcast right now, so I'm not sure. But I think that that like influenced his that like he was always like both of us were total botany nerds like that's pretty much like why we went to college and became friends we were so into plants and botany and uh i had had quite a few previous um mushroom experiences but john hadn't and i think that that like really kind of like got him excited about mushrooms both psychedelic and not psychedelic Incredible. And believe it or not, I've been up to that same hilltop homestead and also got to do a velada with the grandson of Maria Sabina, I would imagine the same person in 2010. And it's quite a surreal experience uh, in the sense that it was just myself and two friends and it was all in yeah. Spanish. There was no tourism industry around it. And it was a really beautiful experience. So that's that's, that's amazing. So yeah, yeah. I've uh, I grew up on the border in the south of San Diego and have been active kind of in Mexico with various family and philanthropic causes through the church I grew up in. So, you know, I've increasingly grown comfortable with being in Mexico and different rural parts of Mexico. And as I learn the language traveling solo, you know, it endears you to people if you're showing up kind of as a guest and you speak the language, uh, it tends to open more doors than just Go, you know, going doing the Cabo San Lucas Cancun resort circuit, right? So, and part of what kept me down here more often and, and kept bringing me back is the mushrooms, like going down to these really undeveloped areas where there's a lot of indigenous knowledge still alive around all kinds of different ethno-mycological use cases. And I've been fortunate to connect with some academic mycologists that are the world's foremost authorities in the the funga of this particular region and any papers you read about mushrooms in Chiapas, one of these two people will be the authors of them. And it, it's quite fascinating to see the academic bridge with the indigenous worldview and to be kind of front row tickets to have front row tickets for that, where I've been out to a community called Naha here that's 
in the middle of the Lacondon jungle and the people still wear white tunics that are made from tree bark. You see them pounding the tunics and they were never colonized. They were small enough and remote enough where their tribe of 400 or so people kind of were left to themselves up until like the late seventies in a lot of ways. And to actually interview people about the mushrooms in the area and they're talking about wood ears, like, oh yeah, we make it this way, you know, and it's fascinating to me how different mushrooms have different uses in different parts of the planet too. Like in New Zealand, you know, the Maori use a certain type of mushroom that may grow elsewhere, but the other people, you know, they don't eat it. Or they, yeah. Tawaka. Yeah. 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 You know, so I just am currently reading Alex Dorr's book, the little book of mushrooms that he gifted me. It has all of the usual suspects, but there's a lot of these kind of less publicized mushrooms and I'm really fascinated by ethnomycological use because so much of it is oral too, right? There's not a written tradition. So I was in India this year and got to go to Kerala to the first mushroom festival and just hearing from people about how these tribes in India, they know how to use the mushrooms, but it didn't really, this knowledge doesn't really get passed down because it's not written down. So unless somebody's going out there trying to document it and learn about it, unfortunately it just kind of dissipates so i know fungi foundation with juliana furchie is working on a very important project related to that hope to see more of that exciting times overall to be a a mycophile right now so what if we what if we just jumped into your personal mushroom supplement routines i would imagine as the owners and stakeholders in a quite a large mushroom company that you actually use different functional mushrooms on a semi-routine basis. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your personal functional mushroom intake? Yeah. Um, so I right now have three of our tinctures on my desk. I like. I feel like a lot of times I'm kind of a little bit of ADHD too. So I'm like often when I'm working, I like you know need a little distraction. So it's a good thing for me. Like, oh, I'll remember to take my tinctures because they're right <laughs> next to me. Um, so what do I have? Uh, <laughs> I've got our lion's mane, uh, our reishi, and our immunity blend. So those are the three uh, right now that I have on my desk that I take every day, kind of to just you know for a little distraction while I'm working. Um, I still like. I think that eating mushrooms is just like one of the best things you can do. I mean, I think supplements and tinctures are great and they're extracts and they're important and they're easy you know like that's it's easier for me to distract myself and take a immunity uh tincture while i'm working at my computer than it is to like cook up some shiitakes at work and eat them um but uh yeah i i take medicinal mushrooms daily and really believe in them so i want to say um it is really important to understand that more is not always better. Sometimes in this industry um, and with the excitement over mushrooms, people just think more, more, more. Um, that's not, you know, the case. You have to listen to your body, talk to medical professionals. Um, I think that's just always important to say that, like, th- these are uh, maybe new things for your body. Um, I have taken, you know, all of these, the tinctures as well as our capsules at various times. And I often find myself kind of cycling between things, which is um, often recommended by herbalists. Um, Herbalists like Christopher Hobbs talks about kind of cycling, taking one for several months. um, And uh, it can be, have the most effect. Right now I have a bottle of our Clarity, which is our our lion. It has lion's mane, reishi, and cordyceps, I think. 
in it. Is that right? The uh, the clarity and it use um, and it has uh, it's like 500 milligram capsule and I take one a day. Um, and uh, I think when I look back, um, one of the things that I attribute the most over time to is Rishi. I think Rishi has been really, really good for my allergies um, and uh, my sleep and my mood. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a sample size of one. I'm, I'm, that's my, you know, anecdotal, I think, lived experience as, as, as I see it. But uh, um, these are made with 100% fruiting body. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I, that's, that's, I will continue to, to be a daily user of one of those. Um, it's a really, and yeah. One thing, I mean, Lou is heavily involved in education and events. Uh, he's the education and events manager here at North Sport, and uh, he works as part of customer service as well. And I'll say one of the thing, you know, there's our personal use of them, but it it is just pretty amazing to see like customer feedback as well. And, you know, just people that like truly feel and believe um, that, like the products we're selling have helped them tremendously with um, all kinds of different uh, health issues or mood or whatever. And, um, you know, I don't know. It's like, I, I can't make, I only know my personal experience with um, using and taking mushrooms. And then there's obviously studies and science um but it is also just cool to get to like see all this positive feedback from people that just are like really feel like they're helping um a lot and they just feel and to like know that we're helping people and making them like feel good about um these products that they're using is feels good to me my family's so into it too i mean my dad um has uh <laughs> always is reminding me to keep up his constant supply of, of our capsules and tinctures. Um, and he's, um, you know, dealt with cancer in the past few years um, and other health problems just from being an old man. And uh, um, he is a, another person who would attest to uh, how it's been helpful to him. I love chaga. I've been taking a chaga tincture that I picked up over in Europe and I've got a few friends who say, if you can't feel the mushrooms working, you got to take a different product, right? Like, I think that one of the trends or one of the challenges, I guess, that uh, was touched on during the Mushroom Summit in Denver that we were at um, is that some brands will just kind of fairy dust, right? They'll put like a t five milligrams or like a tiny amount into their stack and then it gets marketed as a lion's mane capsule or whatnot. And that really, that's a race to the bottom in a lot of ways because you have people who will try a product and they go, oh, I tried lion's mane or maybe I tried a you know grain product and it didn't really do much for me. So there really is like a spectrum of quality, right? In terms of what you're taking and um, I would hope that more people would just be scrupulous in that sense and, and produce really high quality products and not just say mushrooms are trending right now. How can I jump on this trend? So uh, another one I've noticed is Agaricon. I had never seen that before, but that's been popping up in tinctures. And I had a friend who sent me some and he goes, stop taking any of the other supplements or you know mushrooms just so you can feel the Agaricon. And it was pretty profound, I have to say, I noticed it. So I try to only use products that I actually feel when they're working, right? And like yeah. Lion's Mane is one of my favorite in that capacity where you think, well, I can 
have pretty good memory recall. Like it's nice and lubricated up there. And, you know, there's a million things to keep track of these days. So why wouldn't you want something that's going to help you stay sharp and stay focused? And yeah, I mean, obviously the brand you buy from is a personal preference in a lot of ways, but part of what I try to do with the program is to really like showcase people uh, the, the whole sort of process behind it. And, and, you know, so we know, oh, that this is a quality product that these people are making because they're actually invested and in, they're mushroom people, right? They're, they're mushroom people. And, um, but that's, you know, the supplement industry, as you know, is not FDA approved, right? Is my understanding. So like basically anybody could just launch a mushroom supplement brand if they wanted to and market a, a lion's mane product. So yeah, um, would be curious if, if you could talk a little bit about this trend. Is that something you've noticed that now as more players are coming to the market, how does that impact your business in a way? Are, I mean, that's the kind of like hard and sad thing about like, you know, a growing market. You know, like we started this because, and, you know, Lou is incredibly passionate about mushrooms and is an, an amazing mushroom educator. Um, and I'm like so proud of him. I love to see like the mushroom walks he leads and the events he creates. Um, but we started this because we're like passionate about mushrooms and producing really high quality products to help people uh, grow and use mushrooms. And, uh, you know, there wasn't that much of a market and that much excitement when we started and now there is like it is it has grown and there's a lot of momentum and that me and there's more money to be made as well so there's like people getting into it that don't necessarily have the right intentions or as high quality standards um there's still a lot of good products on the market for sure but there's a lot of really low quality products on the market which is what happens as soon as there's offered you know financial opportunity in something and so i think it is really important that's one of the reasons we want to create a lot of content and education is so um people can be discerning in what they um choose to use and consume with mushrooms so they're taking high quality products that do truly help them and whether they're growing mushrooms or uh you know taking medicinal mushroom products like we want people to have the best products and the best experience with mushrooms yeah we let you know we try to let the research guide us we um often are linking to research in our newsletter um we sell a bunch of books on various topics including um uh uh the the wellness side um and and these uh functional mushrooms um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to touch on what you were talking about with regard to potency and it made me think about labeling and understanding what's in the, the mushrooms can be so difficult, um, and, or what's in these, these supplements, um, can be so difficult. And I just wanted to point out to people kind of how to think about it. Um, when you look at the back of a, uh, a supplement, uh, box, you will often see the type of mushroom and it will be, um, an extract. And so, and there'll be a ratio. And so if it has 50 milligrams of 10 to one, uh, extract, you can multiply that number, that 50 milligrams by 10 and you know how much raw mushroom, dried mushroom was put in there. And so it can help you sort of visualize and understand actually how much 
how how much mushroom is in your product that you're looking to get. Um, and I think that that uh, certainly helps me make sense of it. Um, but uh, we're we're constantly um, staying up to date and and learning more and, and improving. Awesome. I've only got one or two more questions for you guys. It's been a wonderful discourse so far. So I'd love to hear about where do you get your intel? Maybe you don't need to share the exact, you know, in, in case there are any trade secrets in there. But when you when you look at mushrooms, there's a growing mushroom media space. But, you know, there's a, a lot that seems to happen that doesn't make it to uh, the rest of us. For example, you know, these industry conferences and trade shows. I know there's going to be the International Mushroom Conference, I'm missing a letter there, in uh, Bari, Italy this year. And they do that every two years, right? Last one was in Belgrade. One before that was in Shanghai. And there seems to be kind of a dense concentration of intel, intelligence in these places. But uh, for somebody who's just starting out or who's got a medium-sized mushroom brand, where do we find out about these things, you know, trends and research and so on? Are there any good outlets besides mycopreneur where people can learn about what's happening with mushrooms well one of my one thing that i i want to mention is a lot of times you find a, a good research article it's not hard to find you google something about cordyceps or about chaga but there's a paywall right um and so uh you know having i think finding ways around that um is key. There are definitely ways. The easiest way is to connect with universities um, and connect with local institutions that may have access. Um, and there are people there that will help you get kind of get around those things a lot of the time because they have those um, memberships already. Um, and so that's how we gain access to some of the papers that we want to read um, through, through research. Um, I order new books all the time. I'm always checking out new books as they come out. Um, that's, that's another key thing. Um, just staying on top of what's being published, uh, is, is one of my, um, biggest things. And then as, as you said, what's happening live on Facebook, on Instagram, on, um, shroomery, like whatever, what's going, what are the conversations that people are having? Um, is, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think uh, collaborating and visiting with and communicating with other people doing similar things. Like, I think it's a pretty sharing community in general, and there's a lot that can be pushed forward. I feel fortunate that North Sporn itself is now kind of like big enough and has enough like really good thinkers that kind of even internally, we can kind of like innovate and do studies and push things. But I definitely think going to conferences and visiting other growers, I mean, I think it's so awesome how you kind of travel the world and get to like have these different conversations on your podcast and have these conversations not on your podcast and see um, these different operations. Um, and one thing I would like Lou to talk about is, um, he's organizing and has for the last three years an event called mycology outside um, which happens in september in maine in this beautiful setting on the river um, which is all about mushroom education and bringing people excited about mushrooms together and having workshops and um talking about medicinals growing mushrooms and i'll let him take it yeah lab work i mean we're gonna have more um kind of uh 
guests, uh, really, really knowledgeable people um, than ever this year. Um, but it's like Mushroom Camp. I mean, really, we we may watch a movie. We have um, incredible food. Uh, we um, cooking demonstrations. Art is a component. Kind of anything and everything to do with mushrooms, just in a more intimate, focused learning setting than you might get at a um, just big festival. Uh, so we're really, really excited about mycology outside. Um, uh, and it's a beautiful time of year in Maine, September. There's lots of wild mushrooms. So we do a ton of foraging um, and we just find lots of great stuff. Um, really something I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, and I wanted to add uh, kind of uh, the, the sort of previous topic at, that we do research partnerships um, outside of North Spore too. And so people with cool ideas that need help, need brain power, need resources, we can help people and we want folks to reach out to us with ideas. And on top of that, we even have a scholarship um, for folks working in a field somehow related to mycology. You know, we can help fund that work. We want to push those things forward. Um, and really, that's a big part of our mission. Awesome. Super important. And one of the things that drew me to this concept of mycopreneurism is people coming from backgrounds, different educational and professional backgrounds and vocations and starting their own mushroom businesses who now have that unique lens and perspective they bring from whatever background they're in into the mushroom space. And for example, you know, my background's in media and I, I didn't realize there could be a track for doing mycocentric media, but lo and behold, here we are. There's a, I noticed kind of this like dearth of information of just tons of interest, but not so many consolidated hubs where people were sort of sense-making of all this and, and, you know, platforming people to, to speak in depth about mushroom related topics, which are all over the place these days. So let's just go ahead and leave the last few minutes open to you gentlemen to share any projects that you're currently working on that you're excited about and any other parting shots for the audience. I mean, one of the biggest things right now uh, is the boom room. Uh, I think we should probably touch on the boom room. We, we, you, you talked about it for a sec, but I think it's just really, really exciting. Uh, the boom room 2.0 um, is going to be uh, here and available very, very soon. And it's a nice upgrade uh, and um, will provide people with a lot of flexibility and ability to grow at, you know, quite a scale, actually, um, right in their own home. Uh, and so it provides humidity and airflow um, uh, containment uh, and, um, and really lets people grow quite a few mushrooms. As I said, um, we, you know, you can maybe fit 15 to 20 blocks in there, which is a lot of mushrooms, way more than one household um, uh, needs in general. Uh, and so, um, or, or you can do trays or buckets. You can, it's very flexible. And I think that is um, a really cool innovation um, along with the boomer bin and the boomer bins attachments. I mean, so those have been really, really big things um, for us lately. Um, but uh, another project that I'm excited about, you know, as since we're going into winter here, we, we're not doing too much outdoor cultivation, but we have a backyard now. And being ready for spring, we have some cool ideas for experimenting with outdoor cultivation and um, installing some great things outside, like Hen of the Woods, 
um, and, and many other uh, logs. We, we even have our own woodlot out here. And so we can cut our own trees and test different species uh, combinations. Um, and that's very exciting to me. Another um, thing I'm really excited about is um, we just started collaborations with Johnny Seeds, which is a Maine seed company. It's one of the premier seed companies in the US. Um, and they just produce incredibly high quality seeds and create really good content and have 10 research farms. Um, and we're actually going to be part of their offerings and their catalog and their online offerings as like their sole exclusive mushroom supply um, partner. And I'm just really excited to like, you know, they have plants covered and we have fungi covered and I'm excited like in research and collaboration together, like what we'll be able to do. And just, I think there's so much overlap. There's so many small diversified farms and larger farms that are growing vegetables, but not growing mushrooms yet. Um, and I'm excited to like continue doing research and with them, um, you know, educating people on different techniques to incorporate uh, mushrooms into their, you know, commercial farm operations or homesteads or backyard gardens or whatever it is. And then, like Lou said, the boom room is an incredible option for people to just be able to grow a significant amount of mushrooms at home inside. Like even if they're in a city, they could be on the 40th floor of a building in New York City and produce more mushrooms than their friends and their neighbors could eat, you know? So I think that's exciting as well. Yeah, I just, I, the Johnny's thing, thank you for mentioning that. The potential for research there for furthering outdoor cultivation, which is so young, there's so little out there uh, about how to do so many things, so many questions about companion planting and um, whatnot that uh, can, are there, are there, is there a combination of two mushrooms you can put in a bed that actually like enhance each other? I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows that very well. Or um, what microorganisms are then are created through the decomposition of a wine cap bed that um, may boost one plant more than another? Um, you know, what, what, what are the best uses um, for all of these incredible species as, as they can, you know, be incorporated into a garden. Um, it's a really exciting time. Sure. I guess the last question I have is what trends should people keep their eyes out for right now with mushrooms that are emerging? And for example, mushroom coffee, that's really exploded in the last year. Like if you go back a couple of years, I don't remember ever trying it. And now there's at least a dozen brands and there you know, seem to be more arriving. And now that mushrooms are here and people are aware of Cordyceps, lion's mane, reishi, et cetera. What are some trends that we should keep our eyes peeled for in terms of how we might see functional mushrooms showing up in the near future across the market? Well, uh, one, um, I think the, uh, I think we will, um, I would like to see innovation. There's a lot more species, as you mentioned, that will come onto the scene. So some of the same types of products, but new species, um, Poria, Tremella, all of these different species that, um, that can be utilized. Um, I think um, there's a lot of growth potential in like, so like the 
topical product space that has begun. You see it, but I don't think it it has you know matured the way it can. Um, uh, you know, other types of uh, you know ways of modifying your grow space and optimizing your grow space, keeping your grow space clean and knowing the um, parameters of your grow space. Um, and so I think that those things are going to keep getting better as well as selection and strain um, strength is just, uh, is just going to continue to improve. And I think because this market is expanding and there are going to be, you know, new uh, medicinal products offered also like quality differentiation is going to be and education is going to be important because I think, you know, there are, we're already seeing in some of our like grow supplies, like competitors that are coming from the, you know, in a lot of ways, the like CBD and cannabis uh, industry or, you know, I maybe shouldn't say, but like seem to somewhat be collapsing. And there are people that came from that and like, oh, what do I do now? And they're getting into mushrooms, but they don't have a background in mushrooms and they're maybe producing lower quality products. And, um, you know, I don't know. So I think that there, there is more competition and more products out there. And so it's important for customers to be a little bit more educated. I mean, this was a funny example. We have some books right here that are AI generated mushroom books from Amazon that literally stole our photos and parts of our writing and they are garbage. Yeah, so like if somebody crazy. bought one of these and had never read, like, you know, you read Trad Cotter's book, which is a great book. Uh, and I'd love for people that to be their introduction uh, to mushroom growing. But there's some books here that are literally just written by AI and are mostly gobbledygook. Um, and might, if you read the first few pages, might sort of appear to be uh, an informative book. But they, they are trash. And there's many of these on Amazon. And the same type of thing is going to be with supplements, is going to be with sterile substrates. So I think as popularity grows, people are going to have to be discerning. Yeah. Totally. I love that. Thank you for including that little bit about the AI books. And two thoughts come to mind briefly, one of them being... When I was over in South Korea earlier this year, I picked up some mushroom skin cream and mushroom facial care is, you know, facial care and cream for men specifically is a huge thing over in Asia that hasn't really translated to the U.S. market yet that we may start to see. And strangely enough, I had a gentleman on the podcast who has a venture fund and he had a skin cream, but it wasn't a mushroom based skin cream. And that product didn't work out the way he wanted to. And now I'm thinking, why didn't he just throw some tremella or some mushrooms in there? Maybe it would have, you know, caught on with the current trend. And the other one is about the ubiquity of mushrooms and people concerned about the flooding of the market of all these different mushrooms and I heard someone say, people don't buy sushi at 7-Eleven, you know, like just because there's a ton of them, there's still going to be a place for people who have really quality genetics and really quality products. Like nobody's going to buy their sushi at 7-Eleven. So just two thoughts that come to mind. And I just want to thank both of you very much, Alaya and Lou, for coming on the podcast today. And I hope we can do this again sometime and yeah. keep up to speed with all of the developments that are rapidly happening over at Northspore. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much, Dennis. We had so much fun. We'd love to have you come for a visit uh, if you ever feel like coming to Maine. And we'd love to have you at Mycology Outside in September if you'd like to be part of that as well. 
I'd love that. I've never been to Maine somehow. So yes, consider my airline ticket booked. Thank you for the invite. That's awesome, man. Um, well, thank you so much. I, I guess one last little tidbit I would mention is Amanita. We didn't say anything about Amanita. And Let's do it. Let's talk about it. I've got Amanita right here and I've, I've become very interested in it because it's all over the place now. So let's definitely add on a few minutes for Amanita here. Yeah, I, I think it's been really fascinating to see that. And that is an area of you have you have a bunch of people getting in that don't know what the hell they're doing. And it's and it's frankly dangerous. Um, I don't know how many incidents there have been of people really um, having a really bad time needing hospitals. I don't know um, that I don't know how you would find reports on that. Um, but I do think Amanita has incredible potential and it is cool to see companies like uh, a company we met in Denver that's like publicly traded in Canada and you can get this like isolated, I think it's the Muscamol that's uh, isolated um, and is really great. I mean, really nice for sleep um, and calming um, and but use of Amanita, I think, is going to really still explode here. Um, the, one of the problems, as we know, is it's not cultivated. You have to find that Amanita um, and some of the related, uh, the Amanita muscaria is the main one, but there are other species of Amanita that can be used too. Um, and I think the medicinal qualities of that are amazing, but you got to be careful because some folks are marketing it as magic mushrooms. Um, and it's, it's not that, it's not what you think, you know, I think there's some deceptive um, stuff out there with exactly what what it is. Um, and so I don't know if North Spore is going to be involved um, in, in the Amanita world, but um, it's very interesting to see and exploding right now. It totally is. And I've done some content around it for that reason. I've been very trepidatious to ever personally try it, even though it grows in the regions where I where, where I frequent and I photographed it and collected it and documented it, et cetera. But uh, I believe the company you're referencing there may be the same one I have some tincture from because they're from Canada and they're publicly traded. Uh, Psyched Wellness is the, the brand that I have at the moment. And they were a sponsor of a conference I went to recently in Miami. And it was that sense that it's this one in particular is marketed as a sleep aid that, you know, endeared me to it as I go, I don't really want to have a big jarring Amanita experience at the moment, but like, surely, you know, I will try a few drops before bedtime. And it's been awesome. I have to say from my bio saying my limited experience with it, it's been lovely. So, you know, plenty of people or a growing number of people are doing the science and the, the herbalist research behind Amanita and a couple come to mind. Ash Ritter is one, Black Sage Botanicals. I've had her on the podcast and she teaches classes on Amanita. But yes, part of why I wanna do more educational content around it is because I've seen it pop up all over the place. I've seen Amanita gummies and smoke shops in Chicago, right? And I've seen Amanita chocolate and it's being marketed as a psychoactive magic mushroom, which it certainly qualifies for, but it's not what most people are referencing or thinking about when they think about magic mushrooms. But it's one of those curious policy loopholes where, for example, Amanita muscaria or muscamol is illegal in the Netherlands where psilocybin truffles are, are legal. And in Australia, muscamol is illegal, but you can get medically prescribed psilocybin. And then in the U.S., it's the opposite. And it's, of course, psilocybin by and large is illegal unless you're in Oregon, uh, but you can get Amanita anywhere. So it just about time we recalibrated our collective policy response to 
to psychoactive mushrooms, I think. Legalize yeah. nature, man. Legalize nature. That's where I'm, I'm about. Yeah. And in the meantime, education, you know, it's, uh, it, it's imperative to educate. And thankfully, there's many great people who are doing that. So including Northspore, who, again, I'll, I'll close this loop by saying Northspore videos on YouTube were definitely some of the first videos I saw about how to grow. And uh, I'm glad that it's ballooned into what it is today. So thank you both very much for joining me. And I look forward to continuing this conversation in person in Maine, if not before. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Thank you for the work you do, Dennis. Thanks, man. It's been great. I was just uh, reading some of the latest articles on your website and um, we'll be staying tuned and, and we'll stay in touch. Cheers. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Mycopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Mycopreneur Podcast.